So the story goes that once upon a time, there was a kingdom called Paradise. And it was called Paradise not because it was more beautiful than any other kingdom, but because of the way that its citizens treated each other. And it really began with the king. The king knew that the way that he treated his subjects would impact and influence the way that they treated each other. And so he acted with love and kindness and compassion and justice, and that's how the realm was influenced. That's how each and every one of them treated one another. But then one day the king died, and his son, the prince, ascended the throne. And his son was so unlike his father, he acted with a sort of cold indifference and apathy towards others. One day he was sitting on his father's throne when two advisors walked in and they said, Prince, there, there is a, a famine in one corner of the kingdom and if we don't act quickly, the people will starve to death. The prince reached to one side of his throne, grabbed an apple, took a bite and said, well, I have enough to eat. I'm sorry if there's a drought in that corner of the kingdom. It's just not my problem. And the advisors left. A short while later, two other advisors came in. They said, Prince, there is a a drought in one other corner of the kingdom. If we don't do something, the people are going to die of thirst. The prince this time reached to the other side of his throne, took a pitcher of water, poured himself a glass, took a nice, big, long drink, and said, well, I have enough to drink. I'm sorry if there's a, a drought in that corner of the kingdom. It's just not my problem. And so the way that the prince acted changed and transformed the kingdom into a place that no longer looked like paradise. Instead of the citizens being concerned with the needs of each other, they looked out for themselves, and the suffering and the needs of other people around them just wasn't their problem. And pretty soon, people began to forget what paradise used to look like. Everyone except for an old boat maker. The boatmaker remembered what the kingdom used to look like, and so he decided that he was going to teach the citizens of the realm a lesson. He took one of his old boats, and he brought it into the, into the harbor, and he began to work on it. And the people would pass by, and they'd say, boatmaker, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a magnificent yacht, and when it's done, all of you are invited to come aboard. So the boatmaker worked, and he worked until the yacht was complete, and, and anyone who wanted to was invited to go on that maiden voyage. Even the prince himself went. So they went out into the, into the bay, and he dropped anchor, and he invited them to open up their picnic baskets to enjoy the food that they had brought. They could even go swimming if they wanted to. They enjoyed it for quite a while until the wind started to pick up, and the people got a little nervous. They said, Boatmaker, I think we've had enough for today. Can we go back to shore? He said, okay, but there's one more thing I want to do before we go back. He went down below deck, and then he came back up with a drill, and he started drilling a hole in the boat. And the people began to panic. They said, go get the prince. He'll know what to do. And they went and found the prince sitting on the front of the boat suntanning. And he came back, and he saw that the boatmaker was indeed doing what they described him doing. And so in his most regal and royal tone he could muster, he said, Boatmaker, what are you doing? He said, I'm drilling a hole. Well, why are you doing that? It's my boat. It's my drill. I can do as I please. Then the prince's regal tone started to fail him. He said, 
But if you do that, then, then water will swamp the boat and it'll sink and I can't swim and I'll drown. You can't swim and you don't want to drown, the bootmaker said. Well, I'm sorry, I can swim. That's just not my problem. Now the prince was in a full-on panic. He said, what do you mean it's not your problem? Can't you see that if I have a problem, you have a problem? And if you have a problem, I have a problem? And if anyone on this boat has a problem, we all have a problem? We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. This morning on World Communion Sunday, that's what today is, it is World Communion Sunday, we remind ourselves that we are all in the same boat, that we are all interconnected together. And typically on World Communion Sunday, that means remembering that we are interconnected together as the Christian family, that it's not just Presbyterians that we are connected with, but it's Methodists and Episcopalians and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And sometimes we have some real serious debates about those, what it means to be a Christian. But the hope is that on World Communion Sunday, we can set those things aside and remember that we are interconnected together. But here in the 21st century, in the year 2021, almost 2022, by the way, it's almost 2022. I haven't processed 2020, and we're almost in 2022, right? Yeah, you, yeah, right. Not just me, all of us haven't processed 2020, and we're almost in 2022. Yeah, I haven't processed 1989, right? We are learning that we are connected beyond just our own faith groups, beyond just our own tribes, that we are connected together as the human family. And that connection means that we are connected together with people who have different faiths from us, Muslims and Jews and Hindus and even people who might profess no particular organized religion at all. But then beyond that, we are also learning that we are interconnected with creation itself that we are connected with the forests and the trees, the mountains, the hills, the oceans, everything, the, the, the animals, the little creeping bugs. We are connected with all of it. And if one of them has a problem, then we all have a problem because we are all on the same boat. And what we have been hearing over the last several weeks from our Climate Action Now team and all of their hard work is that creation does indeed have a problem. The problem revealed in climate change, in the climate crisis. Will Finelli, our man on the street, as we've heard over the last several weeks, uh, back on the Birkenstock beat, is that what his phrase was? That he has said that it's not just people who care about climate change, it's not just people who wear Birkenstocks who care about climate change, right? I don't have a pair of Birkenstocks, at least not anymore. Um, but I care about climate change. And we've heard from uh, various people throughout our congregation who care about climate change across generations. It's not just the younger generation either, but it's across generations. That climate change is real and it is a very serious issue. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm not going to try and convince anybody of the reality of climate change. I take it as a given that climate change is real. I take it as a given that it is a crisis. It is the most urgent crisis of our time that it threatens life across the planet. And I also take it as a given that humankind has been the one dry, drilling the hole in the boat. That our actions, the ways that we have uh, organized and structured our corporate lives together, our communal lives together, that it has resulted in the warming of the climate. And so I take it as a crisis. But I also take it as a given that, like we heard it from Catherine Hayhoe, that there is something that we can do, that not all hope is lost. And I don't want to steal too much of Lynn's thunder for later, 
But what I will say is that I believe the changes that are necessary are bigger than just the personal choices that we make, but it is systemic and wholesale. We have to change the way that we engage together at a society-wide level. Now, these next couple of statements might be a little obvious, but I am not a scientist, uh, but I accept the work that scientists have done, that they have proven, I think, that climate change is real, I'm also not a politician, which all of you, I'm sure, are incredibly grateful for. (laughs) But for me, this is not a partisan issue. And one of the things that I have found most frustrating about the climate change and climate crisis conversation is that it has fallen prey, like so many other things in our society, to the partisan divide. That you either have to be a Democrat to care about it, and if you're a Republican, you don't care about it. It's a left and right, red and blue That is so incredibly aggravating and frustrating to me because we are all in the same boat, and this is not a partisan issue. I'm also not going to speak about it from an emotional level, that certainly Heather and I feel the the angst of parents who have a a child who's here and one that's on the way, of wondering what sort of world are we going to leave for our children. I experience that, Heather experiences that. Others have named that for their kids and for their grandkids. But I'm not going to speak about it from that perspective this morning. I wasn't asked why do I care about climate change for one of those videos, and that was on purpose, because I speak to you all for about 20 minutes every week. But uh, why do I care about climate change? One of the reasons why is I think that it is a theological issue. That the Bible depicts for us a creator God who lovingly creates the world. I talked about this last week. The the universe didn't have to exist because God is self-sufficient, but God created it out of this sense of overflowing love and joy and, and generosity, wanting other things to experience the joy of existing and being alive. Now, certainly those accounts in Genesis are not literal and scientific, and when we investigate them as such, it robs those stories of its power and its meaning to us. They are theology. They tell us why we are here, that we are created in the image of God, that we are meant to reflect God's loving concern, that the God who creates the world with love and generosity and joy and goodness, that we are meant to exude those same things as the, in the ways that we exist within the created world. And so the, the reality of climate change, I think, confronts us. Are we just and faithful stewards of creation? And the answer, I think, is quite obvious right now. The reason why we're talking about climate change is that we have not always been faithful and just stewards of creation. The book of Genesis imagines in that first creation poem, because there's two creation poems, right? In Genesis 1, God says to humankind, because it's humankind in general at that point, Adam and Eve come in the second story, God says to, to uh, humankind, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth and subdue it. And that sounds like really aggressive language, right? But surprisingly, the Bible was not written in English in the first place. I remember hearing someone, I remember someone saying one time to me that we need to read the King James because that's the version that Paul used. I'll let you, I'll let you catch up on that one. It wasn't written in English. That idea of having dominion and subduing it is a simply saying that we have authority over the earth, that we are to govern it and rule it. So the question is, what kind of rulers are we? Are we like the just and good and fair king in that story? Or are we like the prince? 
concerned only with what we have, taking from the earth, taking what we need, and unconcerned with how it affects other people. Because creation has been singing songs of praise to God for eons, for a long time. That we are not the only ones who worship and serve God. It is others, too. It is other beings. It is all of creation that sings praise to God. The psalm that I read for us this morning, Psalm 148, depicts all of creation united together in that song of praise. Psalm 148 is a a praise psalm. Sometimes the psalms can be kind of brooding and people are talking about the oppressions and the the needs that they have. Sometimes they're just really sad. But this one is a a psalm of praise. It's one of the, the last few psalms in the Bible. All of those are praise psalms. And we don't know who wrote this one. It could have been David. We often associate David with the Psalms. He did write quite a few of them. But there's no indication as to who wrote this. But whoever wrote it must have been taken in and captivated by the beauty of God's creation. There's color and vibrancy and life to this psalm. Perhaps this person was standing out in the night sky looking up at heaven just amazed at the stars unaware and doesn't know the same things that we know about the stars, but just captivated by it. Or maybe the leaves were changing as they are now, and the psalmist was captivated by that, just drawn into the beauty of God's creation. And what the psalmist imagines for us is that creation is united in this song of praise. We heard it, right? That the sun and the moon and the shining stars are singing out to God. The waters above the heavens. So you get a little bit of biblical cosmology there, right? They understand that there is water above the heavens. We know that's not true now, but it reflects their worldview. Praise God from the earth. Praise God, you sea monsters in all deep. Again, you get some, a little bit of biblical mythology there, this idea of sea monsters. Although, maybe you've seen some of the things in the sea, and they are a little bit like monsters, right? The little fish with the light on its head. You know what I'm talking about? Even that is united in praise to God. That horrifying creature is united in praise to God. Fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds. All of it united in praise to the God who gave them life. And then at the very end of that poetry comes humankind, late into the story And all of the particulars, all of the uh, ways that we try to stratify our existence are placed on even ground. Kings and all people are united in praise to God. St. Francis of Assisi must have had a similar experience when he wrote down these words. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord, brother, son, who brings the day and gives light through him. And he is beautiful and radiant in all of his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears the likeness. Be praised, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars and the heavens. You have made them precious and beautiful. Be praised, my Lord, through brothers, wind and air and clouds and storms and all the weather through which you give your creatures sustenance. Be praised, my Lord, through Sister Water. She is very useful and humble and precious and pure. Be praised, my Lord, through brothers' wind and air and clouds and storms and all weather. Through you, you give your creatures sustenance. Be praised, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who feeds us and rules us, who produces various fruits with colored flowers and herbs. What Francis and the psalmist imagined for us is that creation 
is a co-worshipper with us, joining in the songs of praise that we sing, praising God, giving thanks to God for this overflow of love and joy and their, their, giving praise to God for their very existence. And what's amazing to me is that creation has been singing this song of praise for a long time, long before we have ever arrived in this world. Scientists have said that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And that number is almost meaningless. It's so big. Who could conceive of 13.8 billion years old? The astronomer Carl Sagan, knowing that, decided to condense down the, the scope of the universe to one calendar year, and he calls it the cosmic calendar, to help give us a scope of where the events in the universe take place along the timeline of one annual year. So January 1st at midnight would be the Big Bang, and then the present moment would be December 31st at 1159. So this is what the cosmic calendar would look like. So January 1st, like I said, midnight, the Big Bang takes place. January 22nd, the first galaxies start to appear. It's not until March 16th that the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy we call home, appears. And then we leap all the way to August 28th for the sun to be formed. And then September 6th, the earth arrives. And the next day, September 7th, comes the moon. September 14th, the first life begins to emerge on earth in the form of single-celled bacteria. September 30th, remember we're only going to December 31st. September 30th, photosynthesis arrives, the, the process that allows for there to be oxygen in the atmosphere, the basic building block of all life. December 5th, multicellular life emerges. December 20th, land plants first appear. Remember, this is December December 20th, December 25th, the dinosaurs appear, and then they go extinct on December 30th. December 31st at 12 a.m., we're on December 31st from here on out. Primates arrive, 224 primitive human beings are born, 1024 p.m., stone tools are developed and fire is domesticated, 11.59 and 48 seconds, the pyramids are built in Egypt. 11.59 and 55 seconds, Jesus Christ is born. Think about that. The story that we as Christians claim to be the story that changes the history and the scope of the universe happens on the cosmic calendar at 11.59 and 55 seconds. And then the present moment, of course, is 11.59 and 59. And that's where we are currently. This song of praise has been going on for a long time. It has been ringing out through eons. It's been ringing out for long before any scientist peered into a, into, a into a telescope or a microscope, into a telescope and looked out into the night sky. It happened long before we could ever conceive of the sort of universe that we lived in and that we existed in. It happened with, with species would arrive and then go extinct. The song of praise has been ringing out to God for eons. And so I think that climate change and the climate crisis is a theological crisis because it threatens this song of praise that has been going on for that long, for 13.8 billion years. Now, Perhaps there's life in other parts of the universe. We don't know. All we know is that there is life here and that God has made us in God's image. 
And we are threatening that song of praise that has been going out for a long time, that we are but one part of the choir. And so can the rest of creation continue on in that song of praise? Because what has happened, I think, is that that song of praise has become a song of lament. It's become a song of, of lament in the melting of the ice caps, in the rapidly uh, in the, rap- the more rapid process of the extinction of species, it's become a song of lament in the deforestation of the Amazon. It's become a song of lament in ecological degradation. It's become a song of lament for those human lives that are so impacted by the realities of the climate crisis. Because it's not just ecology, it's not just animal and plant life that is affected, it is human beings. And often it is human beings who are marginalized and most at risk are the ones who often bear the the greatest threat from the reality of climate change. One of the lasting images in my mind is from Hurricane Katrina all of those years ago. And the people who could get out, who had the means to get out and wanted to get out, were able to do so. But it was those who lived in poverty and people of color who bore most of the damage, most of the the threats of their very lives from that disaster. And those are the people who are most affected by the realities of climate change. And so can we maintain, can we hear that song of of lament? It is as Paul says in the book of Romans, that all of creation, Paul says all of creation is groaning and waiting for its redemption. That it's not just us, but it's all of creation that is waiting for its redemption. And so I think what is needed is some repentance. Now, that's an overly spiritual term in the church, right? Repentance. But all repentance means is simply to go in another direction. We are in desperate need of going in a different direction in the ways that we interact with the planet that sustains us and that gives us life. The fourth century church father, St. Basil the Great, not St. Basil, St. Basil, (laughs) says this, O God, enlarge within us the sense of fellowship with all living things, our brothers, the animals, and all creatures, to whom thou gavest the earth as their home in common with us. We remember with shame that in the past we have exercised the high dominion of humans with ruthless cruelty, so that the voice of the earth, which should have gone up to thee in song, has been a groan of travail. May we realize that all creatures live not for us alone, but for themselves and for thee, and that they love the sweetness of life. I pray that that would be our own prayer, that we would remember that all creation doesn't exist just for us, but it exists for itself and it exists in a song of praise to God. That we would hear the song of lament where where creation is lamenting, that we would hear it and that we would feel empowered to do something about it. Because it is, as Catherine Hayhoe says, that we can actually do something about it. This is not all loss. This is not all bad news. But we can take the actions and the steps necessary to help reverse the effects of climate change, to make sure that the creation can continue on in its song of praise. Because we are just one part of the choir. We're just one part of the choir. And our ability to sing songs of praise depends on creation being able to sing its. Thanks be to God. Amen.